In the message today, Pastor Josh wraps up our series on the book of Micah as he walks us through chapter 7. While much of the book has been an indictment, as it comes to an end, we see God's faithful love and compassion for his people. As always, we pray that we will be challenged to grow in our walk with God as we hear the truth of his word. Well, good morning, church. How are we? Yes. Okay. If you have your Bibles, would you open to Micah chapter seven? We are indeed in the last chapter of this incredible book. I pray that you have enjoyed uh, our time as we have gone through this. Uh, as you are making your way to Micah, uh, just remember that if you're you're new with us, or, or maybe you're like, I still we're we're week seven. I still don't know where Micah is in the Bible. Table of contents is always your friend. Please go there so you can see what we are saying today. Because if if you've been following along, you know. There have been some pretty hard moments in Micah. There have been some, some words that have probably caused, no doubt in their day, a lot of heartache and a lot of pain and maybe even a lot of fear because they don't know what was about to happen. But maybe even as we have understood it in our day and time, some of that same feeling is true today. But let me help you rest assured that as we move through this final chapter and we get towards those verses that were so beautifully read for us, we are going to move to see not only the hope that we have for then, not only the hope that we have for today, but the hope that we have for an eternity and the, 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 the great grace that we have in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So as you are making your way to Micah chapter 7, just a little bit of an intro. We are in the final chapter. This is about 50 years in the making. So when Micah starts prophesying, when he comes onto the scene to begin to preach and begin to call the people to, to understand and then to call people to repentance, 50 years has gone by. Remember that when he started around 750 BC, things were great for the people of Israel of the north, the northern kingdom, and the people of Judah from, from the southern kingdom. Life probably could not have been any better. They had more money, more resources, more land, more power and authority if you were on the outside looking in. But if you're on the inside looking out, you probably have seen that there is a lot of corruptness, a lot of, of leaders not leading for the sake of the people and the glory of God, which this nation was established to do. Instead, they were leading for themselves, and they were giving themselves uh, to, to bribes, and they were leading for the sake of how much money they could make for themselves. But now, three kings later, a little over a generation and a half later, the northern kingdom has fallen to the Assyrians. So remember, he starts in 750, the northern kingdom falls in 721. And now those same Assyrians who took out the northern kingdom are surrounding the capital city of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. And now they believe, because again, I know we've talked about uh, the Assyrians and Sennacherib and, and the, the passage that we would read in Isaiah and then in First Kings, but they don't know that yet. Like that, that's going to happen, but they don't know that that's coming yet. All they know is the same people that took out their brothers and sisters to the north are soon to take them out. And now they are encamped and the enemy is sitting and waiting for them they don't know what to do things are not good but remember things didn't always have to be this way the reason the assyrians came in and took out the northern kingdom the reason the assyrians are now surrounding jerusalem in the southern kingdom isn't because israel is weak it isn't because they weren't militarily ready 
It was because they chose to do life apart from God's will and God's word. They chose to do that. And God, through many prophets before them and even in their 50 years now, God time and time again said, if you would just turn, if you would repent, and if you would just do what I'm telling you to do, then this pain would go away. But they did not. They chose to continue on the path that they were in. But even still, even even after all of the warnings, again, in Micah's day, we saw in chapter six, just last week, God gave them one final opportunity. They start asking, God, evidently we've messed up. Evidently we've sinned against you. We know that this is because of our sin. What do you want from us? Do you want us to worship you more? You want more offerings? Do you want more, do you want more sacrificial animals? Do you, want, do you want rivers of oil? And God says through Micah, oh man, I've told you what I want. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That was it. That's the requirement. But they still chose not to. So according to the last word of chapter 6, where we ended last week, God says, I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so that you shall bear the scorn of my people. Another way to hear that is, okay, you want to act like you're not my people? I will treat you like you are not my people. That's where we pick up today. So let's listen to the words of Micah as he is surveying the current state of God's people under that. So so they've chosen, I will not do justice, I will not love kindness, and I will not walk humbly. I will do it my way. And here is where that has gotten them 50 years later. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Woe is me. For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Now, Micah's painting a pretty grim picture here. That he is walking into a situation where he's hoping to at least, at least see something, something good, something righteous, something. I mean, if there's a remnant, there's got to be a little bit of good in this town. And he said, there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing good left. And in the illustration that he's using, even after the harvest, there should be some good left on the vine and on the branches. But there is not. All that is good is now gone. And here's how he continues. Look at verse 2 and 3. The godly have perished from the earth. There's no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood. And each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. And the great man utters the evil desires of his soul. Thus, they weave it together. All right, so the only things, the leaders that are left here, are incredibly wicked. They're not upright. They're looking for blood They're very skilled in doing evil. Actually, they practice it, so at the right time, their evil will be done exceedingly well. Guys, they aren't speaking of a pagan nation. This is to be a people that loves God. This should be the people who want justice, love kindness, and do walk humbly with God. But they are choosing not to do that. Look at verse 4. 
and the best of them. So, so as he is surveying this land, as he is surveying what he sees, the best that he can see is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. All right, so the best that they have to offer is like a sticker bush. Has anybody ever, ever in the history of ever, been around a sticker bush and thought, God, thank you for creating that. I think that thing's great. I want more of that in my life. The only redemption that we had with sticker bushes where we used to live in Picayune is we would have the blackberries that would grow on the sticker bushes. But then as we are digging deeper into the sticker bushes to get one sweet taste of the blackberry, our hands would be covered in stickers. There's nothing good. And what he's saying, look, the best, the best they have to offer is like a sticker bush, a hedge of thorns, but their day of reckoning has come. Their day of judgment is here. All right, so what comes next is what life for them will be like because they chose to do it on their terms. Let the hearer understand. What we will read in the next few verses is what their life will be like because they chose to do it on their terms and not on God's terms. Go ahead and buckle in, because this isn't just a truth for 701 BC. This is a truth for 2022. Let's read God's word. Verse five, put no trust in your neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt and the daughter rises up against her mother the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. This is the society that we get when we don't walk according to God's will and God's word. Okay, just take a minute and step back and look not, I'm not, this isn't just like a prophetic, a prophetic word for 2022. It's not just a prophetic word for March 27th. Guys, this has been the history of us since the beginning. If sin rules you, this is the outcome. If God rules you, you have peace that surpasses all understanding. And the crazy thing is, it is a free gift of grace offered to us, and all we must do is put our hope and trust in Christ alone. And yet too many times we say, no, I got it. I'll do it my own way. I like my timeline better. I like what I can get for me and my family better. God, you are good. Now remember, they weren't just heathen or pagan apart from God. They would say, we like God a little bit, but we also are going to rely on our own strength. No, no. This is the outcome of that life. Put no trust in the neighbor. Supposed to be people that you know and love. Have no confidence in a friend. Listen to this next one, the end of verse 5. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. You can't trust your spouse. You can't trust the people who, who love you because there is sinfulness. It is all about me. It's all about us. And that's not a, a, a poke at the spouse. That's a poke at all of society. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And the man's enemy comes from his own house. 
This is their society done their own way. It isn't what they wanted, but it is the natural outcome of when God's people tell him, no thanks, I don't need you, I can do a better job than you can do. Church, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, made terrible gods. They tried to be him. They tried to do his job. They went back to the beginning, to Genesis 3, to the fall, and they believed that lie. God is withholding something good from you, and you need to go and take it for yourself. And they chose to believe that lie, and this is where it got them. Church, this is where sin will get us. Please don't miss this. This is where our life, apart from God's will, gets us. Do you know why? Because we also make as terrible gods. Our timeline is not sovereign. Our will is not sovereign. The things that we want aren't good for all and glory to the Father. We are not good gods. But see Micah's resolve in this passage. Look at verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. This is his call to action. For Micah and the remnant that remains, those few who have remained faithful, they, they, they can remain confident, not because they see a glimmer of, her, of hope in their current situation. They don't. But because they know the heart of God and they know whom they serve, they know that he is a promise-keeping God. They say this with confidence. Look at what they say, verse 8 and following. Rejoice not over me, O my enemies. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and he executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who says to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Now, for us in this room, you may be sitting here and say, that seems strong, but I don't know if I'm incredibly encouraged about that. For us to understand it this way, the enemy that has been constantly waging war over you and seemingly by all objectionable accounts, is winning. You have no power over this enemy. Where this enemy wants to go, it goes. What it wants to take, it will take. But there is a day coming, says God, that that enemy will be trampled under his feet. Now for us, church, that may not be the Assyrians, and that may not be the Babylonians that will be 100 years from now, but for us, listen to me, that is still the sin that so easily entangles us. How many times have you, and this is completely rhetorical, so please don't answer out loud. Don't want to know your business. I know we live in crazy town. I don't need to know you're the mayor. How many times have you gone to God broken over your sin? 
saying to the Father, God, please take this away from me. I hate this sin. I hate that I love it. I hate that I go back to it. God, if you would just take this from me and you have a great moment with him and you feel free in that moment only to go just a few days later or maybe even a few hours later and you find yourself back in that sin again. And if you've lived long enough, you know that it may feel like that sin has power over you. What this word tells them and what this word tells us is, guys, there is coming a day when one who returns, the true king, the true shepherd, the good and right king that will lord over us, will take that sin, take that enemy over our life and not just do away with it, but he will trample it under his feet. He will kill the sin that torments us. Don't miss this. Don't give up hope. That's why Paul writes in Galatians, when, when, when the time is right, don't become weary in doing good, for at the right time you will receive the harvest of your work. Don't give up, church. Don't believe that the enemy is winning. Don't believe that he has won, because he has not. A better word has already been spoken. Yes, the days for Israel and Judah soon will be hard, harder than they could have ever imagined, even harder than what Micah is describing right now. But those days will not last forever. The promise has been made and God's will will be good. His promise will come to pass. And when that day comes, it'll be like something we have never seen. Look at verse 11 and following. It will be a day for the building of your walls, and in that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria. Listen to the towns. Assyria, the cities of Egypt, and far from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. All right, so God will give an increase so large to Israel that they are going to have to change their borders. So when it says that there, it is going to come a time in that day that you're going to rebuild the walls, it is not speaking about the walls that they had already had and had been knocked down. What he is saying here is, guys, there's going to be so many people coming to faith in God, you are going to have to take the boundaries that you have and take them farther out than you've ever thought possible. And it will be there, it will be in those places like Assyria and Egypt that you are even going to get people. Let that sink in. Sure, there would be people who are going to be taken from Jerusalem and put in Babylon that they are going to return. But don't miss the meaning of this. There will be people from Assyria and from Egypt. The ones who once held them captive will now be brothers and sisters because of God's redemption. For some of you in this room, that feels like, well, well, good for them. But for some of you in this room, that is life to you because you didn't grow up loving God. You grew up as an enemy of God, a persecutor of God's people. And now God and his grace has offered to you not just salvation, but family. Not based on what you've done or where you've been, but based on his goodness for it ever. Don't miss what God is saying to these people. This day that's coming is going to be unbelievable. So then Micah turns to this prayer, and he begins to pray this in verse 14. He says, God, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest, in the midst 
of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as the days of old. And you may be sitting here and saying, I do not know what a Bashan or a Gilead is. So if you go back and you are looking at the Exodus account, they are leaving Egypt, they're going across the wilderness for those 40 years, and they are going into the promised land. These two places are some of the first places that they get to encounter. And in their encountering these lands, here's kind of what the picture that unfolds about them, particularly Bashan and Gilead, is this, that the cows are fatter than any other cows. I don't know about you, but I'm sold already. That tells me the burgers are bigger than any burgers I've ever had. Steaks are more juicy than they've ever like, like when they see this, that was the selling point for them, that the grazing land would be great. The trees would be mighty. And here's the prayer that he's praying. He's not saying specifically, send us back to that place, but God, send us back to your promise. Send us back to the place where we know you want us to be. We have failed you. Our sin has separated us from us, but you and your grace are restoring to us what we lost in sin. So God, lead us. I find it curious in verse 14 that the first word used is shepherd. It is definitely a prophecy of what's to come. And that's why Jesus, when he says he is the good shepherd, is so powerful. Because he will be the one that leads them out of their sin into the place of promise. And he's going to shepherd them with his staff. The unique thing about a staff, particularly if you're looking at it through the lens of, of Psalm 23, staffs uh, held in the hands of a shepherd, they were two things. They, they were protective. They could hurt you if they had to, but they were also comforting, and they could guide you when you could not see. God still does both of those things for his people that we may continue to be right with him. Micah continues in this prayer, verse 15 and 16. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show you marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all of their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds, and they shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. All right, so he is invoking some pretty powerful things. Again, if, if we're not well-versed in the Old Testament, let me just kind of give you a quick rundown, just very high-level things that they would have experienced as they are coming out of Egypt. What did God give to Moses, the ability to enact, as he is getting the people to be out from under Pharaoh's regime? There were 10, what? 10 plagues. Those were miraculous events, each one in and of themselves. But God in his grace gives them that. But then as they are now freed, they are being brought towards the promised land, but they encounter a problem, and they get before the Red Sea on this side and the, the Egyptian army on this side. What did God do? He splits the sea, and they're able to walk across the sea. Oh, but the army begins to follow them. What do they do? Well, God allows all of his people to get across, and then he takes the sea and does what to the army? He drowns them. But then you would say, well, then that's great. No, no. It is going to be a long time before they get to the promised land, and they have no GPS and no map on how to get there. So what does God do? That at night when it was dark, he gave them a pillar of fire to lead them. And at day when the sun was scorching on them, he gave them a cloud to protect them. 
When they were hungry, they woke up in the morning and they opened the doors of their tent and there was something on the ground and the first guy evidently got up and said, what is it? That's literally what manna means, by the way. And that word stuck and God gave them what is it every single morning. They got tired of eating the what is it? And they said, God, can you give us something else? And so birds started flying towards them and they just grabbed the birds and started cooking them. God gave them everything they've needed every step of the way. And this is what he's saying. I'm going to do even more than that. Each one of those things, listen, was not an end of themselves. It wasn't just for the moment to say, oh, we have bread today and we have meat to eat. or We have water to drink from the rock. No, no. It was all proving God is good. He is faithful and his promises will always remain true. God in all of his ways that has led and cared for the people. Micah is asking him to do it again. But then we get to, I think, the best part of this entire letter, the last few verses. Look at verse 18. Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? For the remnant of his inheritance He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. All right, so Micah ends his book with a powerful call to remember who God is. Now, this is pretty unique. He uses the phrase in verse 18. He says this, who is God like? Do you know what Micah's name means? Who is God like Yahweh? So effectively, what he says in verse 18 is he calls out his name saying, this is the reason for my prophesying to you. The reason that I have called out for 50 years, the reason when you've told me to sit down and be quiet and to stop prophesying, I've only stood up and yelled louder so you could hear and so we can get to this moment. Is there any God like our God? God's promise is to pardon our sin and pass over our transgressions. Church, don't miss this. This is where our theology of salvation comes into play, okay? God does not pardon our sin or pass over our transgressions because we deserve it. God doesn't pardon our sin or pass over our transgressions because we have paid him some price. He is not like the faulty leaders of that day. We slide him a little money, we slide him a little tithe, we slide him a little service, and God's going to give us good. That's not how he works. Anything that God gives us is because he is good, not because we are. Don't miss what God is speaking to them and to us today. God does not retain his anger forever, and he delights in steadfast love. Maybe this helps. Look at verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot, and he will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. All right, so listen to this. God will forgive sin. God will pass over transgressions. God has compassion on his people, and he treads our sin underfoot. The implication is this, much like the enemy in just the verses prior. When he treads our sin underfoot, he kills that sin. He doesn't do like we do. We have a nature in us that wants to war against the sin, but when the sin is on the ropes and it can be taken out, we like to put it in a box and save it for a day that we might can go back to it. 
John Owen, the Puritan writer, said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But too often, we have pet sin. We like to put it in a box where we're safe from it for a moment. I will never understand. I'm about to ruffle feathers. Are we ready? I'll never understand people who like snakes in their house. Y'all get out of here. I don't understand. Look, some are like, that's God's creation. No, there's a reason that was the picture of the guy who messed it up. But some of y'all, y'all got some snakes in your house, and they are sitting in a, in a container where you can look at them. Oh, but they're so cute, and I'm so safe because I'm on the house. You're going to be laughing real big when you wake up one morning and that snake ain't in there anymore. Where'd it go? I don't know, but I bet you're going to find out soon. Too often we treat our sin like that and we put it in a little aquarium, a little, little cage where we can look at it and it's safe from us for a distance. We have dominion over it for a moment, but all of a sudden it comes out and we have no more control over that sin. It will will and do whatever it wants and at the moment of us going towards it and that first uh, bringing up its head and hissing at us, I'm out. We're walking away, matter of fact, we're running and we're probably screaming as we run. But the shepherd who's gonna come isn't gonna come and coddle our sin, he's going to kill it. He's gonna forgive us, he's going to pass over the iniquity, but he will take our sin and he will trample it underfoot. He will kill what is killing us. But best of all, he will cast our sin into the depths of the sea. All right, so I told you this is, this is where it gets really good. Our worship team's gonna come back up and we're about to get ready to respond, but don't miss this, okay? So we see where God is forgiving and he's passing over and he's gonna have compassion, but he's gonna kill the sin that is killing us. But what's he gonna do with the dead sin? What's he gonna do with the memory of that sin? He takes it and he tosses it into the depths of the sea so that we never have to see it or hear from it again. How gracious is our God. God forgives our sins as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. Why? Why would he do this? Why would he be this good after his people have treated him the way that they have treated him? It is because of covenantal love. It is because he is faithful, even when we are not. It's because, listen, he is chosen. He has chosen to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with us. I am so thankful that God walks carefully with us, not carefully in the sense to, to not cross us, but carefully, thoughtfully, slowly with us, because, guys, we need it. He is a good and loving God who is just and kind and humble. Here's how Micah says it, verse 20. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Here, here it is in closing. Our God is a promise-keeping God. He is a just and merciful king. He is a faithful shepherd and a good and loving father.
Maybe you hear it this way. All right. So take Micah, hold your space, go to Revelation. Remember, this is, this is prophecy. Go to Revelation 7. This is what we are ultimately waiting on, church. The prophecy of Micah being fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ is laid before us in Revelation 7 and following. Revelation 7, verse 9 and following. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving, honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. That is what we wait for in our King Jesus. Church, there is coming a day that when our king comes back, he will gather his from all the corners of the earth and bring us back. Notice in this passage what they are invited to wear. Sometimes we pass right over that, but they are wearing white robes. What does that signify? That the battle is over and the victory celebration is on. We are not invited into a fight that we may or may not win. We are invited to the victory that our God already holds. And as awesome as that may sound, as great as that is, and you may find yourself welling up with excitement right now saying, yes, great, this is good. Here's the question for me, and if the shoe fits, let's wear it together. Then why do we still choose to do things on our own terms? If we know that this is the offer to us today, right now, why do we say to God, no, I got it? Oh, church, please remember with all that we are, we are not living for this day. We are not living for this moment. We are not living for this life. We are living for the life to come. This kingdom right now, our kingdom means nothing, but his kingdom means everything. So may we be people who come and worship our King Jesus, who come and join in the victory celebration. But if you don't hear anything else today, please hear this. Your invitation is to come. Doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Doesn't matter where you were last night or what you were doing before you got to church today. You have heard the gospel invitation and your call is to come and receive the good that your father has for you. Don't let the enemy make you believe for anything less. Trust him, he is good. What does God want from me? What, what do I have to do if, if I'm choosing to come and be a part of this? I'm going to give my life to this. What does God want? What are all the hoops I need to jump through? He's told us what he wants. 
to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with him. That is the beauty of this message. It's not about us. It's about him. One day when the skies part and he comes back, it will never be about us. It will always be about him. This has been a production of Broadmoor Baptist Church. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with others and don't forget to subscribe. To help us spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe as well. They can find us wherever they prefer to get their podcasts. And if you'd like more information about Broadmoor, please visit our website at broadmoor.org or connect with us on your favorite social media platform where we're listed as at my Broadmoor. Thanks for listening.